G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are things? Good, thanks, Rowan. And in relation to our topic today, really good to catch up after Melbourne's just come out of lockdown, so you'll know all about that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It is a, it's a very good topic today. It's going to be relevant for me as much as anyone, I reckon, but uh, as you say, Brilliant to be out of lockdown, brilliant to be back face to face and and chatting about today's topic, which we've called the sustenance of social support. So, Dad, I must admit, I feel like I can speak to the sustenance of social support now more than I ever have been able to ever before. But what are we going to be talking about a little bit today? Okay, so we're talking about the importance of our social connections, particularly for our mental health. Also for our physical health, as we'll talk about shortly, because when people experience social isolation and loneliness, that has a significant negative impact for our physical as well as our mental health. But also there's so many positive benefits from having richer social connections that that's a big part of our mental health and well-being more generally. So as we've been able to get more on top of the physical threat from the pandemic because of increased vaccinations... It highlights the importance of considering our mental health and a big part of that, as we'll talk about today, is considering our social connections and ways of limiting social isolation and loneliness, but also optimising the positive benefits of our social connections. And I think, you know, as we said before, this is such an important topic at the moment because we've had a little bit more social isolation in previous times than we have... ever before really for, for many of us and and I saw with interest recently the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare put out a survey uh, basically asking people you know are you feeling a little bit more lonely and and 50% of survey respondents got back and said that they were feeling more lonely during the pandemic but I noticed there that you made a we, we said you were talking about loneliness and social isolation and I must admit, you know, not necessarily having a psychological background myself, I thought those two things were synonyms in some ways. I thought, you know, being socially isolated meant that you, you were lonely. So can you just tell us a little bit about what the difference between those two things are? Okay, now they do usually go together because when people are socially isolated, they're more likely to be lonely. But social isolation is really more the objective indication of the number of social connections people have. Like, for example, how many friends people have, what kind of frequency of contact they have with other people, whether they're cut off from usual social supports in some ways. Whereas loneliness is more the subjective negative feeling of not having as much social contact as you want. So loneliness, the emotion, the subjective feeling. And that means some people might seem to others to be somewhat socially isolated, but they might not feel so lonely. But also people could be living in a big city with people all around them that they maybe come across in some kind of incidental contact or even have a number of friends, but they might feel lonely. And so this is the importance of the person's, if you like, subjective view of the number and quality of their relationships. Well, I think we saw that recently in terms of, you know, over the last 18 months or so, just about everyone has had some degree of of social isolation. But, you know, I think everyone's probably got a friend who who loved lockdown in many ways, who maybe a a slightly more introverted person. And you kind of thought, hey, you know, you're in your element with with, uh, with Netflix on the couch and all this sort of stuff. So it is interesting the way that you 
describe that and seeing that there can be that difference between loneliness and social isolation? Yes, so partly relates to our preferences that way, but also maybe expectations. And this might be part of the reason where with recent lockdowns and through the pandemic, particularly 18 to 24-year-olds would have been differentially affected. And that's at a time in life when people are normally expanding their social connections and looking to expect to connect well with others. And I think that report itself on especially increased loneliness with young adults... It just shows the importance of considering and factoring in our mental health more at this point when we're a little bit more on top of the physical threat. And it seems to me that obviously this is something that's come up in recent times, but it's not as if this just came out of the pandemic too. A little while ago, I read a quote from Carl Jung, dad, you know, one of our, our favourite people, uh, Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, and, and, you know, he was basically writing 100 years ago, writing after the Industrial Revolution, I believe was the, the event that he was talking about. But I'll read this quote because I think it's absolutely fascinating to, I suppose, chart the importance of social connection and maybe chart the lack of social connection that has been developing for, well, according to Jung, up to 100 years or so. But the quote reads... Thanks to industrialisation, large portions of the population were uprooted and were herded together in large centres. This new form of existence, with its mass psychology and social dependence on the fluctuation of markets and wages, produced an individual who was unstable, insecure and suggestible. So what that suggests to me, it's a little bit of a complicated quote, but at the same time, I think to a degree the point is that, you know, before kind of the industrial age, before cities were really created, we lived in a lot smaller groups of people. And potentially being in a smaller group of people, we could have more intense connections with everyone around us. And so potentially moving into these larger centres where potentially we have interactions with people who are, you know, quote-unquote strangers. We don't necessarily know them as well. We don't necessarily have that connection. But it seems to me that Jung is suggesting anyway that that more interactions with those people that we don't have as much of a connection with can lead to more loneliness. And I think he talks about, yeah, insecurity and suggestibility as well. Yes, and when we look at the idea of large centres or cities, yes, people can have many people around them and still feel lonely. And that was a point made by Hugh McKay also, the social researcher, when he was talking at a non-fiction film festival in Geelong, the Word for Word Festival in 2018. And he was also highlighting the social changes where now one in four people live in a single-person household. And that's going to probably increase to one in three by the end of this decade, about 30 to 40% of marriages end in divorce. So there have also been social and cultural changes that might contribute to feelings of loneliness. And so when we talk shortly about some of the impact of loneliness, it highlights the importance of our social connections and social support. So as Hugh McKay said, humans are herd animals and we're going to suffer if our social connections are disrupted. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard a really interesting podcast with Hugh McKay recently, and I'll put it up on the podcast page for today at sykespeels.com.au. But he was talking about this idea that in recent times, I think this goes in a little bit with the idea from Jung, but in recent times, there's been so much of a focus on the individual in terms of, you know, maybe even particularly out of America, you know, we see a whole lot of things based on individual rights and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, I think when we do focus on things at such an individual level, it can take away some of the emphasis of the importance of that connection with others. 
Yes, and there are other factors as well, including technology. For example, social media and the way that people connect that way. It might look like people have a certain number of social connections, but there's certainly evidence that if people consume more social media, for example, teenagers spend more hours a week engaged in social media, they'll be even more depressed. Yeah, well, social media is an interesting one and, and, you know, it's so paradoxical at times for that reason that you described that potentially, you know, it makes it look like we have more connections, but, you know, we don't necessarily have that authentic connection with those people that we are connecting with on social media. And, and to me, that highlights the importance of having an actual connection. You know, it's not enough to, you know, click a like on a button and go, hey, I like your photo or, you know, what, whatever it is, like someone's tweet. Like you actually need a little bit more than that for, it seems to me, like the psychological benefits to kick in, if that makes sense. Yes, and later we'll talk about some of the strategies we think that can help for people to feel more connected in a meaningful way, a way that will ease loneliness, for example. But it's worth putting in perspective how this is such an important topic around our health when we think about the impact of loneliness. So, for example, loneliness can have an impact on our physical health. When people report feeling lonely, they have an increased release of cortisol, a stress hormone. As a matter of fact, it found that when people were acutely lonely, they were releasing as much cortisol as people who had experienced a physical attack. That just shows how distressing it can be. When people feel lonely, their immune systems are compromised. If they're exposed to a cold virus, for example, they're three times more likely to catch a cold. There's more premature death from a range of causes, including cardiovascular disease. There's more substance abuse. And in terms of mental health, there's more depression and anxiety, as Hugh McKay was also emphasising. But there, again, on the positive pole, if people have good social supports and good social connections... They're more likely to engage in healthy diet, exercise and, and deal with stresses and adversity more effectively. So you get that positive pole as well as avoiding some of the extra risks of loneliness. Well, I remember hearing about one time, it was one of the most fascinating experiments in psychology that I've ever heard and it was to do with uh, rats in cages. And so what they did was to do with addiction as well and I think this... This, I suppose, shows the degree to which loneliness is, is so powerful. But they, for example, had two sets of cages. In one cage, they had a single rat by themselves. And in the other cage, they had a group of rats. That, you know, the, basically, they had all their needs met and they were in a social environment as opposed to you know, the poor old rat over by themselves in like a lonely, you know, not, a, not a very nice environment to be with. And basically what they did was they gave the rats cocaine in their water and what they found was the rat who was by themselves who was you know experiencing the loneliness you know it's maybe anthropomorphizing a little bit but at the same time by themselves the, the rat would essentially self-destruct on this cocaine and then you could take the same rat and put them in the more social environment the nicer environment to be around where they had you know mates to play with and they had enough food and drink all this sort of stuff and they had the choice to continue basically having that like cocaine-laced water. Basically, in that more social environment, they chose not to continue basically with their cocaine addiction. And I remember hearing one time of these experiments that they spoke about the idea that the opposite to addiction is connection. And it's something that, you know, we hear so much about, you know, addiction, all this sort of stuff. But I think when you put it in those terms, in terms of, you know, it, like addiction can be such a destructive thing for people whether it be alcohol or whatever it is 
But at the same time, if people have social supports, that seems to be one way that makes it so much easier for people to get over that addiction. So I suppose that's one example in which it shows how important social supports are. Yes, and certainly that's shown up with research over decades when we look at things like schizophrenia, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. When we look at different kinds of mental afflictions that people can have, well, it helps prevent those afflictions when people have good social supports, but also tends to help people recover better. For example, even for schizophrenia, they found, especially over many, many years, it would really show up that those who had supportive families, for example, they would tend to fare better in terms of lesser hospital admissions, better health generally. And so whenever psychologists are working with people for any kind of difficulty, even though we might think of the psychological factors like people's attitudes and habits and behaviours, it's always important for us to consider people in the context of a system, including their family system, but also the wider connections, if you like, or the family and other wider connections, because that's going to make a difference to what resources that they can draw on, and that will actually help speed up people's recovery, for example, or help them have a a better long-term recovery. And so it seems to me that the benefits are almost twofold in terms of we get more resources to draw on when we have social supports, but it seems that we do have some real negative emotions and some, I suppose, some somatic feelings that develop out of not having those social connections. So it almost seems twofold in terms of the rationality of, you know, you have more access to people who potentially have more ideas and, and more, you know, tools and resources to get through a situation. But then it's almost like beyond that, it's like there actually is the emotional lack of, you know, whether it be connection to others really does lead to physical problems, psychological problems and, and connectional problems potentially with people even later on. Yes, and what you bring up there, it actually highlights that there are several different types of social support that make a difference. One is the emotional support. And what really counts for that is that people can confide in a trusted other. That emotional support where people can acknowledge if they're going through hardship, they're having a difficult time, they are struggling, and feeling that the other person will care about them, be able to listen to them, offer them some kind of encouragement, give them a space to be themselves and feel accepted. That helps us feel safe which is really, really important when we're facing threatening situations, including the extra stress that most people have gone through with this pandemic. So there's the emotional support. There's also instrumental support. Instrumental support is practical support, for example, like providing meals for people if they're going through very exacting times and under a lot of stress and they're restricted in some ways. It could be offering people a lift or giving them a hand in whatever way, so that instrumental support. And then there's maybe what we would call informational support, and that's maybe giving people advice, maybe being a mentor, giving people guidance in some ways. And again, we know that was very important with the pandemic because, for example, there were subgroups in the community, for example, certain migrant communities where many people didn't speak English, where there was maybe a lot of misunderstanding about the impact of vaccines, for example, or the risks associated with that. So those communities where there is more informational support given tended to then, for example, increase their vaccination rates and be better equipped to deal with the challenges of the pandemic and then hopefully be able to more safely connect with others in the wider community more often in more situations. It's really interesting hearing about the couple of different types of support there because 
I suppose, you know, you hear about sort of, you know, support and particularly supporting a friend or, or something like this and, and your mind immediately does go to, for example, emotional support and, you know, what what can I do for you or, or how can I be there for you and all this sort of stuff. And, and I suppose one thing that comes to mind there that you realise is that you don't necessarily just have to sort of be there for that emotional support. You know, it can be, whether it be, maybe not informational as much. If someone's sort of in a situation you're just sort of readily handing out advice. But at the same time, it's that thing of offering something specific is one thing that I've heard which, you know, sounds really good in terms of, you know, you can go, oh, you know, is there anything that you want to tell me? And most of the time, there's probably not something that, you know, someone's immediately wanting to divulge and get off their chest. There absolutely might be. But sometimes it might just be something as, as you know, as simple as, can I just pick you up, you know, some groceries? Or, or you know, whether it be pick up your you know, kid from basketball practice or whatever it is. But I suppose what comes to mind for me there is you just realise that you don't have to always be offering emotional support. It can be in a range of other ways too. Yes, and we heard examples of that through the pandemic, didn't we? Like early on, people might leave a a few extra toilet rolls on someone's doorstep when we went through that crazy time of people thinking that they wouldn't have enough of that. But certainly groceries or people looking out for someone who might be on their own and looking to get in touch with them in some way or drop something off for them, that kind of thing. Looking out for other people is a key thing. But when we offer someone a hand and do it with a certain intent to show caring for the other person, that person will often feel a degree of emotional support in addition to the practical help that's offered. So I think that intent of considering other people, showing care for other people, that has a profound impact over and above the specific bit of help that was offered. Well, there really is a striking example of just how profound that impact could be, really. And it came from an experiment in England, didn't it, Dad? And I believe this came from, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but this was to do with Hugh Mackay, I believe, was involved in, in this research. And it was in, uh, in Frome in England. And so basically in Frome, the entire community there had all engaged in, in this experiment in some ways. But basically for the experiment, locals were encouraged to make the effort to not only get to know their neighbours, but to actively look out for others in the street who were at more risk of being socially isolated, perhaps as a result of being frail or elderly or living alone. People were encouraged to smile at those they passed in the street, including strangers. They were encouraged to chat with others at bus stops rather than standing silently. Those who were known to have health problems and be at risk of social isolation received extra support from community groups and volunteers. So what happened in that situation in Frome was basically it had a remarkable impact on the whole community in terms of the demand for hospital services. So I believe Somerset County was the the county next door to Frome and in this period of time where they conducted this experiment, Somerset County hospital admissions in emergency rose by 29%. And over the same time in Frome, it fell by 15%. And this is something that you'd know a little bit more than certainly I do, but I believe this is just about the only intervention that they've ever been able to come up with that across an entire population, they've been able to reduce hospital admissions. And it seems to me that it came literally from just doing some, some small, almost tokenistic gestures in that community to create this I suppose, real feeling of connection with everyone. And it could have been something as small as smiling at someone or or chatting with someone at a bus stop. And so, yeah, to me, that highlights just the degree to which making a small effort in a small way can have a difference with someone. Yes, actually, I think the figure was 29% increase 
in the neighbouring area and it fell by 17% in Frome. So that's just quite remarkable that there was that amount of difference. And some of the interventions quite simple. It actually reminded me of when I first moved to Geelong from Melbourne, so a big city, to Geelong Hospital and it was a smaller scale than the hospital. This is 40 years ago in Geelong. But what struck me is everybody who walked past you would tend to look you in the eye and nod hello. And I thought at first, how quaint. And then I thought, that's just lovely, actually. It does make you feel like you belong more. It's partly about the feeling of belonging, a feeling of safety. And this idea of making eye contact with people, a conversation in the street, that kind of thing, it's about helping people feel they belong and they're in it together. And I think there might be some of that opportunity as we come out of the main restrictions as well. If there were a little bit more of this this eye contact, a light comment here or there, a little bit of a positive uplifting remark, it might even be a stranger, but certainly with friends showing how much we appreciate them, having contact again with hospitality staff or others we haven't had contact with, showing people how much we appreciate them and having that contact with them again. Those gestures can make a real difference to health. But in addition, there was that aspect where, say, community groups or volunteers would look out for those who are most marginalised, perhaps, or most at risk of social isolation. But that also shows that, say community nursing or physical interventions or, or for that matter, any other service at all that is offered to individuals does have a social or a connection component that makes a difference to our mental health and well-being. But whatever we do to help that feeling of connection that we have with others and helping others feel appreciated or they belong will make a difference, as that Frome study would suggest. And I remember seeing one time that basically I know like with natural disasters, if the community band around those people who've been most affected, then those who, for example, may have lost a house and all this sort of stuff, their basically mental health is so much better off just if they know that there's people out there who care sort of thing. And, and so it seems to me that what that suggests is that even with something as powerful as a you know, natural disaster where people may have you know, actually lost their house and may have you know, lost loved ones, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, not to trivialise obviously anything that's gone on in the last couple of months, but at the same time, if something as disruptive and distressing as, you know, whether it be a fire or a flood, again, not to trivialise anything for, through the pandemic, but it just suggests to me that, you know, we can, we, we absolutely can, I suppose, respond with this level of social connection and receive that benefit from it. Yes, that's actually very relevant when you mention fires because there was a lot of research done on the recent Australian bushfires. And that showed it was the people who were more socially connected who fared best in their post-traumatic response. For example, those who were members of more clubs or different social groups, they tended to manage better with the impact of the fires than others despite losses. However, there was also an exception to that, and that's if people had some of those closest to them leave their community. So their main social supports left then that led to maybe increased distress for a number of those people. And that maybe shows the importance also that if we lose social supports, looking to, if you like, if not fully replace them, but compensate for them in some way, it certainly makes a difference if we can forge new social connections in that kind of situation. 
What I take from all that there is that, you know, the opportunity that we have now to, I suppose, reform some of the social connections that maybe we used to have before the pandemic, maybe we obviously kept in touch with people and all this sort of stuff. But I suppose just even, you know, whether it be hanging out with certain people that we haven't been able to see and just making that reconnection again. And I think, to be honest, you know, there's potentially things to do with the time now that are extra opportunities than what was even there before and you know it's been interesting dad since Melbourne has been open there's almost been a little bit of a a New Year's Eve vibe around in terms of you know even on New Year's Eve that's one of the things I love about New Year's Eve that just about everyone you walk past you go you know happy New Year you don't have to know who they are and and you know I, I certainly think anyway walking around Melbourne now there is this extra sense of you know whether it be you know solidarity with someone that you know hey we've been through some pretty tough 18 months together sort of thing and even it is a cafe owner who you may not necessarily have as much to do with but you go in there and you know have a good old conversation about oh you know how are things and you know it's great to see you know things are busy and oh it must be good to have the cafe open again and all this sort of stuff and it it just fosters I think this extra level of connection having been through something like what we've all been through. Uh, That's all encouraging to hear and what you're observing in central Melbourne for example And I suppose it does suggest that silver lining or that possible silver lining from this, doesn't it, of really appreciating our social supports more, which is a lot of what this podcast is about. Just really appreciating that and acting on that in certain kind of ways will make a difference, including what you're suggesting there with the cafe owner, really appreciating those incidental contacts that we have. Sure, we'll convey to our close friends and family how good it is to be able to get back and have dinners together and have celebrations and things like that. But over and above that, it is also these incidental contacts that make a difference to our everyday life. But look, I will say one thing as well that I've noticed with a number of clients in the practice and others that I've spoken to as well, a number of people are actually feeling nervous at this stage, partly because there's also, in a way, more COVID around albeit less of a threat perhaps as people get double vaccinated. But there is an understandable nervousness when people have been, if you like, more keeping to themselves, more restricted in different ways. Any change is stressful in some ways, including positive change. And where for some people it's going to make quite a marked difference, returning to workplaces, having much more contact with others, family members perhaps. There might even be some awkward situations that people find themselves in as they're reconnecting with other people. We might be a little bit less used to that. I think also some people are a little bit slightly less attuned with social skills. We've had a little less practice dealing with a range of social situations, so I think if we make some allowance for that as well. But a number of people, quite frankly, are experiencing a greater level of social anxiety at this stage, including quite a number of kids returning to school. It's not all easy, especially for kids who've been shy or had some kind of difficulties at school, if people experienced any bullying, for example, but certainly where people had a degree of social anxiety... We're hearing from a number of parents. It's difficult to encourage their children to get back to school. And that's where one of the main themes that we encourage is that it's in the child's best interests to get back to their usual routines. So a lot of it is about tolerating anxiety in doing that. And as a community, as we all get used to resuming other kind of routines, hopefully really appreciating that regaining of social connections, As that feeling spreads further, 
but also as those individuals who do feel a little bit uncomfortable with that, maybe a bit of a nudge in that direction, nudging oneself forward, being prepared to face some level of that discomfort, I think that will really help people feel, in the long run, more secure and more back to a certain level of normality. I heard a great analogy, Dad, from uh, Ben Crow, Ash Barty's uh, mindset coach, and he talks about when you're surfing, it's almost like you have to lean into the wave. If you lean away from the wave, then you're just going to fall off your board. And it seems to me a little bit from what you're saying there, that you know, we need to lean into the wave a little bit in terms of, you know, it's not about just taking on everything at once. You know, potentially it's good to have a little bit more of a gradual approach to it all. But at the same time, we're not going to be able to improve our level of social connection until we do, I suppose, at some level, try and sort of, you know, foster some and and look to develop it from there. But to me, that analogy of leaning into the wave is, is something that is relevant. Yeah, I think that's a real good point about going out of the comfort zone, leaning into the wave, as you say. It's also fair enough to pace ourselves in different ways. So a number of people might find that they feel a little bit more fatigued with increased social connections, for example. We can pace ourselves a bit. We can pick and choose a bit the situations that we would prioritise to get back to. And also where people feel uncomfortable about exposure to COVID, for example, or potential exposure, people can still be using different kind of strategies like masks or physical distancing or choosing whether you go to a venue with a large number of people, people can still exercise some caution in that area to the extent that they prefer. But our general theme today is the likely benefit that most of us are going to have as we have more opportunities to reconnect with family and friends again. And I think the other thing to highlight there too is that obviously now that we're open and have a lot more opportunities to catch up with people face to face and that sort of thing, but Also, I suppose, digitally, we have as much opportunity for connection as ever before. And obviously, we spoke about some of the the downside of social media earlier on in terms of, you know, it seems it can lead to depression, anxiety and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, there's many benefits of social media and there's many great things about social media. And particularly over the last 18 months, for example, when you have been able to catch up with friends unless it's been... You know, on a on a group chat or a Zoom or sort of something like that, and even I suppose just the the general nature of the internet these days, Dad. In terms of you know, twenty or thirty years ago, you could be whether it be in, in a town or a city and feel that there was no one else out there who had your specific set of interests. And you know, one example that I always come up with is this fella whose name is Clint Salter, and he basically has a podcast. And he, well, he has more than a podcast. He created a whole business about it and basically traveled the whole world. But his whole thing was talking to dance studio owners. And so he was able to create a whole community around dance studio owners. And so basically, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you're a dance studio owner, where were you going to be able to collaborate with others in terms of, you know, the main people that you knew who were also dance studio owners were probably competitors to yourself because they might have been in your town. And even just through the nature of the internet and things like this these days, you're able to niche down your set of interests to such a degree that you can't help but feel connected to these people. You know, it's like, I'm a Newcastle United fan, Dad, but you know, we live a long way away from Newcastle, but you're still able to connect with, for example, these groups and people over in England. So I just think it's it's important to recognise that, you know, we do have so many more things face-to-face that we can do now, but at the same time, it's worth recognising that there are so many things digitally or, or through social media that we can, I suppose, maybe with a bit of positive curation, 
we can get the social connection benefit from it too. Yes, I relate to something that way. Actually, over the last year, I've been able to connect up with a number of people interested in synchronicity around the world, mainly from North America, but from other continents as well. And so there's something called the Coincidence Project that was set up by the psychiatrist Bernie Beitman. And a couple of times a month, usually, I connect up with the others. It might be at 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning that makes it a little bit tricky. But it's so wonderful to catch up with these other people who share such a strong interest. And with their background, interest and knowledge in that area, that's really enhanced, well, my life and interests over the last year or so. And it also reminds me, actually, someone pointed out from that group that there's an app called Clubhouse that we actually had some discussions about synchronicity on that, but any kind of topic that you're interested in, you can look up Clubhouse and there'll be a group of people talking live about that. And there might be pre-arranged speakers, but it's very egalitarian and people can be in an audience and then look to, for example, put up their hand, so to speak, and go on a digital stage and speak about that topic themselves. And it covers all sorts of different themes or topics people would be interested in. So... That's one example that I've come across. You probably know of other examples yourself. Yeah, certainly in Clubhouse. Like I know whole communities of people who've gotten together and become friends and business partners and associates because of Clubhouse. And, you know, that's where they met. And it just allows you to connect, you know, literally connect with, with so many more people in terms of that maybe one or two degrees of separation away. But as you say, like, I think there is so much changing about the nature of the way that we communicate online and and to be honest like I personally you know I think part of it is that we're only now really learning how to use social media properly you know it sort of seems a little bit more like anti-social media at some times but at the same time now you know I mentioned last week on or it might have been last week I mentioned on a previous podcast about for example like the NFT community the cryptocurrency community and they have these terms like wag me You know, we're all going to make it, where they all sort of say it to each other. And and there's another one, for example, basically it's GN, or or good morning is what it stands for. And and basically in every minute of every day, because, you know, it's morning somewhere is basically, you know, it's the opposite of that, it's five o'clock somewhere thing. But on, on whether it be Twitter, on Discord groups, there's, you know, online communities basically all over the world now and and basically they're saying good morning to each other but they're saying gm and so it's it's actually really interesting to come across because the way that they use this terminology this gm just a you know it's a purely a little positive thing all you're doing is saying you know good morning to someone but at the same time by using the terminology gm instead of good morning people kind of self-select in because they qualify themselves because it's all the people who go what does gm mean and so it's such a small almost hurdle to get over But by instilling that little hurdle of, you know, it's only the people who look up what does GM mean and understand what it means, then they're able to feel part of that community. And to me, you know, you see it online a lot more, I think, these days where there's this almost tiny little qualifier where, you know, if if people aren't interested in that group or subject or whatever it is, well, then they're not going to go through that qualification process. But at the same time, if people are interested in it, and they will go through that process and, and you can get these really, I suppose, authentic communities where people have, you know, self-selected in. You're not going to get kind of the surfer. It's only people who've made the effort to be a part of that community. And, and you know, you see, as I say, with kind of NFTs and, and cryptocurrency and all this sort of stuff. And, and even whether it be, you know, Reddit forums and things like this, I don't want to sort of trivialise the, you know, the bad side of the internet. There's, there's a lot of the internet out there which is, which is pretty terrible. But at the same time, I think there's enough that's good these days that you can recognise the difference. 
And it's easier enough to go, well, I'm, I'm only going to stick to this little, you know, section of the internet, you know, for myself. Basically, muting a whole lot of negative people who don't have their face and name on Twitter is one of the best things that I've ever done because you lose all those just anonymous bots who are just so political and I might be there to, you know, look up the cricket score and you know, they're getting into the vaccine and this, that and everything. And sort of, that's not what we're here for. So I think the ability to curate social media is there as much as it's ever been. What comes across to me is you talking about being selective and deliberate about your use of social media. And so thinking of it that way, I also think of the benefit people have had from catching up with family and friends well, it might be in the next suburb as well as overseas by Zoom. We had to use Zoom, but a lot of people have become much more proficient, including many elderly people have become much more proficient at using that method, for example, of keeping in touch with grandchildren. And that's something that can go on. And I would have to say as well, that changing technology, including with Zoom, how it's enabled telehealth, that's something which is actually now added in people's possibilities for connection, including social support with health professionals. Following the pandemic, that's another way that there's another avenue for people who otherwise more physically isolated or geographically isolated, there's more opportunity for connection. But the main thing I'd like to emphasise at this point, winding up shortly about connection, is that we find it meaningful in some way. There's a meaningfully shared interest. We have a feeling of belonging. We have a feeling of acceptance or safety or trust with others. It's about those deeper aspects of connection that count. It's not so much about the form of technology or how frequent the contact is. It's about that sense of meaningful connections that really counts. Absolutely. And I suppose just to, to highlight that exactly is... You know, this podcast with Hugh McKay that I heard recently, he told this story about two young fellas who'd moved to new cities at the start of the pandemic. And what these two young guys had done is, you know, they'd moved to places they didn't know anyone. And so they'd taken it upon themselves being in lockdown, not necessarily having the opportunity to meet people. They would drop letters into people's letterbox saying, hey, if you're, you know, in isolation, can I get some groceries for you? Or can I pick up something else for you? Or it goes back to that instrumental support that we spoke a little bit about earlier. But at the same time, Hugh McKay was making the, was making the point that they wouldn't have necessarily done that had it not been for the pandemic. And look, if there's anything that, you know, comes out of all this to me is that we have so many more examples of people helping each other, whether it be in that way. And, and just because we don't have as many restrictions now, it doesn't mean that we can't go out of our way to make that one small gesture for someone that, you know, that is potentially going to brighten their day one little bit. And, you know, I, I think about things in terms of everything that's happened recently in terms of the paradigm has changed, you know, regardless of... of whether we like it or not, the situation is objectively different to what it was before the pandemic. But that is an opportunity because there's so many things that we wouldn't necessarily want to retain from before the pandemic. And I think potentially some of it is to do with a lack of social connection with people around us. Whereas in the last 18 months, you know, whether it has been this maybe us against them sort of attitude or whatever it is, us against the virus... But at the same time, I think there has been a little bit more of that develop. And I think we are left with the opportunity now that we can continue to do that if we want to. Just because we don't have as many restrictions doesn't mean that we have to stop all that. Yes, that's a really important thing to highlight. And it reminds me that when people volunteer 
and help others. There are all sorts of indications that the volunteer gains as much for themselves as the person that they're offering some kind of instrumental social support to, some kind of help to. And so I suppose that really brings up that theme of connections. We're not really so isolated from others as we might sometimes have an illusion. Everyone's connected to everyone else. It's sometimes called an I-thou connection, thinking of the we. So when people volunteer for others, when people offer that social support to others, there's not just one person benefiting, both people benefit from looking out for others. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me about all this today, Dad. And uh, we've got a number of resources for today's episode, which we'll put up on the episode page today, which you can access at psychspiels.com.au. I know you've written a couple of articles about this, Dad. And and look, I will find some stuff from Hugh McKay because I'll tell you what, he is an absolute rock star. He's, you know, he's in his mid, mid-80s now. But in terms of some of his ideas, he's, he's up there with the best because, yeah, he has a very good way of putting things. Terrific, Rowan, and I've got to say personally one of the things I'm most looking forward to now, it's just the first time in quite a while we're able to do this, I'm really looking forward to more family gatherings. Great to catch up with you on the podcast, but we haven't had the chance to do that and so for all the other families or other people in whatever way you like to connect with other people, we really hope you can enjoy that further opportunity at this point. Yeah, absolutely, Dad. And, you know, as you say, yeah, good to always be able to catch up. But maybe after I've ticked off one or two friends groups at the pub, then, yeah, very much looking forward to some family catch-ups as well. Fair enough, Rowan. (laughs)